Ladies and gentlemen, it's very good to be here again at the Nehru Centre. We are particularly grateful to the Centre for having us over the so many years and for continuing to have us. And I always feel when I come into this room the, the presence, of course, of Kathleen. And I feel it again this evening. Uh, it is my very great pleasure, once again, Suhail, to have the privilege of chairing a presentation by you. What can we say of this man? Scholar, certainly he's a scholar. His work on Calhill Gibran is evidence enough. Author, of course he's a considerable author and the last occasion when I introduced him was on the publication of his very lovely book, The Wisdom of the Arabs. I note that he is also a very brave man because his next book, it says, is going to be on the wisdom of the Irish. <laughs> Perhaps there's a connection between these two which I have not yet, in my ignorance and stupidity, <clears throat> been able to see. Activist for Peace, Chair, Peace Chair at the University of Maryland and now the recipient of this most distinguished award, the Juliet Hollister Award for 2003 for his exceptional service to interfaith understanding. And when one sees that previous recipients have been His Holiness the Dalai Lama and President Nelson Mandela, I can see why they chose Suhail. He is a very great friend of Temenos. Of course, he's a fellow of the Temenos Academy, and he is my brother. Tonight, he will speak on English Romantic poets and 20th century Arab writers. And in this he will be assisted uh, by two colleagues, Antoine Rad and Tom Durham. The field is yours, sir. Professor Cadman. Thank you very much for your very kind words. I myself am very surprised that this award was made to me, and I asked my wife to check with, it, with the, award, uh, the awarding authorities whether they really meant me, but apparently this is true. However, this is a very painful occasion for me, really. It's the first time that I give a terminus lecture without the presence of my friend, of my mentor, of my sister, my beloved sister, Kathleen. And in our honor, I'd just like to say a few words. The candle is still lit. Kathleen's spirit is with us regardless of the distances that separate us. 
Her everlasting spirit shines to bring light to the whole world. Her work must continue, her memory honored, and Temenus should forever remain an embodiment of her values, of her vision, and of her aspirations. It is the sacred task of those who have known her, who have loved her, and have always been inspired by her to persevere in all the endeavors she has begun. When others die, we mourn and we are sad. But when a life has been lived to the full and has given so much to enrich the world, the end of its earthly existence inspires us all to celebrate the glory of all that she has left behind. When I saw her in September of last year, she told me, Dear Sohail, my work is done and it's time for me to go. As all great poets, she realized by intuition that the time had come for her to move to higher realms from which I'm sure she will bestow upon us all that grace possessed only by the pure in heart and the pure in spirit. She understood what sacred knowledge and the imagination are all about. She created Temenus and brought us all together from various parts of the world so we could share this wisdom with future generations. I can speak for myself. I pledge that I will do everything in my power to preserve her memory and to work with all of you in order to fulfill Kathleen's vision. And let us all come together, united as never before, by Kathleen's vision. Let us, under the distinguished patronage of His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, continue the pilgrimage on which we all have embarked. May the Temenus Academy thrive and prosper, inspired by her vision and example, and guided by the distinguished patronage of His Royal Highness and the support of noble people like yourselves. At the University of Maryland, we have decided to hold a conference entitled the Second International Conference on Khalil Gibran. That will be in memory of Kathleen Ray. I'm in touch with the Temenus Board so that they would be gracious enough to extend their support and become our associates in organizing such a conference. The theme of the conference is East Meets West, Khalil Gibran and Kathleen Rain, a conference addressing the themes of the perennial philosophy and a culture of peace. The conference will take place on November 11th to the 14th of the year 2004.
throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. Oriental culture, in its broadest sense, exercised a considerable fascination over poets, novelists, and visual artists throughout Europe. This trend continued through the 19th century as well as the 20th. We see it manifested in the paintings of Delacroix, the Moorish kiosk with which Ludwig II adorned his palace gardens at Lindorf, and in the poetry of James Elroy Flecker, author of Hassan, whose deep love of Eastern myth and poetry and the landscape of Lebanon inspired some of his finest work. Not to mention Goethe's monumental work, The Divan, The, the West East Divan, which he published in, 19, in 1819. They, in their turn, were the heirs of the Romantic poets, especially Byron, whose vision of the Orient had shaped the perceptions of future generations of readers. Yet, this was not a one-sided passion. In the second half of the 19th century, Arabic poetry underwent a neoclassical revival characterized by two distinct phases. In the first, a rediscovery of classical Arabic poetry and the theories underlying it provided inspiration for a group of poets, chief among whom were the Egyptians Mahmoud Samuel Baroudi and the Syrian-Lebanese Maronite Nasif Ilyazici. Both compiled anthologies, produced editions of classical Arabic poetry, but remained comparatively untouched by the influence of English literature, although both had some knowledge of the language. In the second phase, however, English and French influences began to filter through to a new generation of poets during the late 19th and early 20th century, to such an extent that familiarity with European poetry was considered indispensable for those who appeared and aspired to true literary merit. These poets fall into three groups, each of whom absorbed and interpreted in its own way the influence of the English Romantics, especially Keats, Shelley, and Byron. In Britain, the earliest example of Oriental tales were Samuel Johnson's Rasmus, published in 1759, and William Beckford's Vathic, published in 1786. Others, such as James Ridley's Tales of the Jinni, purported to be translations of Arabic, Turkish, or Indian originals. These tales enjoyed considerable popularity throughout the late 18th century. Further examples include Francis Sheridan's novel The History of Noor Jihad, John Hockworth's Al-Muran and Hamid, and Alexander Doe's Tales of Inayatullah of Delhi. Colorful, flamboyant, and sometimes ribald, these stories all shared a common influence, that of the Arabian Nights, otherwise known as the Thousand and One Nights. This collection of tales, derived from Indian, Persian, and Arabic sources, was originally written in Arabic, became known throughout Europe in Antoine Galland's French translation, which was published between 1704 and 1717. An anonymous English version 
was published in 1705, but no complete English translation appeared until John Payne's limited edition of 1882. Of course, this was followed by the most celebrated translation of William Lane and of Burton. The collection which so greatly influenced these authors then was an incomplete one. More seriously, these stories were generally dismissed by Arab scholars as mere popular tales, unworthy of consideration as part of the corpus of classical Arabic literature. And in fact, the Arabian Nights was completely ignored by Arab scholars until the early 20th century. However, their richness of invention, the stories of the Arabian Nights, their richness of invention, wealth of adventure, and wide range of idiom, from the bawdy to the poetic, continue to delight and inspire Western readers and to influence not only novelists but poets. Sade, for example, composed The Curse of Kihima in 1812, following the success of his Thalaba, The Destroyer which was published in 1801, whose eponymous hero, a young Muslim, overwhelms his foes and destroys the undersea kingdom of the magicians. Although he dies in the attempt, he reaches paradise to be welcomed by his wife. In The Cap and Bells, Keats was to parody these works in the imaginary diary of Kraftikakanto, with its fairy embassy flying over Asia, comets, deserts, volcanoes, and strange beasts. Thalaba, however, was harshly criticized by the Edinburgh Review, which adversely affected its sales. Clearly, then, the mere trappings of Orientalist, attractive as they might be, were not enough to inspire great poetry or to ensure its success. In the case of Keats, Shelley and Byron, we must look for something more. What underlies and underpins these tales and finds its echo in the souls of English romantics is a collection of timeless concepts. Freedom, the demonic, the contrast between the real and the ideal, especially in the realm of love who transcend the boundaries of time and tradition to speak directly to poets and their readers in every age. Med mediated through the poetry of Keats, Shelley and Byron, they form a link between the English Romantics and their Arab successors almost a century later. Who then were these successors? They fall into three principal groups. The Diwan group, named after a book written in collaboration by Abbas Mahmoud al-Aqad, who lived between 1889 and 1964, and Ibrahim al-Mazini, who lived between 1890 and 1949, who are normally linked with Abdurrahman Shukri, who lived between 1886 and 1958. That's one group. The second group, the Mahjar group of immigre Syrian poets, contemporaries of the Diwan group, whose influence traveled from the United States to the Arab East in the 1920s. 
to this belonged Khalid Gibran, Mekhien Naimi, and Amin Rihani. And the Apollo group, which borrowed its title from a short-lived but influential magazine edited by Ahmed Zaki Abu Shadi. Each of these groups responded in its own way to the English romantics, just as they, in their turn, had assimilated and transformed the influences of Arabic and other Eastern literature. The three leading poets of the Diwan group, Al-Aqad, Shukri, and Ibrahim al-Mazini, all enjoyed the benefits of an English education, though Shukri was more systematic, culminating in a scholarship to Sheffield University to take a BA in English and history in 1909. I think he was the earliest Arab ever to receive a degree in English literature from an English university. The generation that came later, which started in the late 1950s and 19, I belong to that generation, so you know how old I am now. <laughs> the English landscape, with its, with its rich variety and climate, so unlike, of, so unlike that of Egypt, made a lasting impact on his poetry, forcing him to expand his poetic vocabulary, to cope with its so many new concepts and experiences, as did his studies of European literature, especially Goethe in English translation, and political, constitutional, and classical history. Both Shukri and Al-Mazini studied at the teacher's school, Madrasat al-Mu'allimin, where they gained the knowledge of English literature, which was to prove invaluable as a source of inspiration and poetic nourishment. Al-Aqad, whose English was largely self-taught, did not perhaps have as broad and deep a knowledge of its literature as he claimed. His reading was unbalanced, weighted heavily on the side of the English romantic poets and critics, such as Hazlitt and the Victorians, especially Thomas Carlyle, although this was not a sufficient basis for a thorough re-evaluation of poetic language and the poet's role, it did provide him with plentiful material for reflection and a strong stimulus to his creativity. <clears throat> Al-Mazini's studies of English literature were assisted by a Mr. Stephens on the staff of the college, probably W. H. Stephens, whose introduction to the study of English literature written for Egyptian students included comparative references in the footnotes to Arabic to help the students to gather some impression of the nature of the English works under discussion. This method was not always reliable, could actually mislead the reader, as when Stephens compared Shelley to the Abbasite poet Abu al-Ala al-Ma'arri. However, it did provide guidance to students eager to explore further both in the works of English poets and in their own Arab heritage by developing a critical faculty and a fresh perspective on the literature of both cultures. One of the textbooks used in the teacher's school, which was also widely read outside the curriculum, was Palgrave's Golden Treasury. Shukri freely admitted his debt to this anthology, from which he derived some of his earliest knowledge of English poetry, especially 
Byron and Shelley, leading him to prize emotion above virtuosity and artifice for its own sake, and to compile his own anthology of 8th and 9th century Uthri poetry, this is Platonic love, under the title The Golden Treasury of Arabic Poetry. Other evidences of its popularity include several poems which Al-Mazini plagiarized, unfortunately, from it, including Shelley's Love Philosophy, and Ahmad Zaki Abu Shadi's remarks in a reply to an article by Shukri commenting on them. Every literary man who knows English should give the golden treasury a prominent place in his library, because in spite of its small size and inexpensive price, it anthologizes the best of English poetry. It is widely spread wherever the English language is spoken. Inside the copy, sent from England, as a birthday gift to one of the nine poets, Shukri inscribed the following poem in Arabic. Translated. Worthy thou art to own a book made all of purest gold, <coughs> a book which all throughout the world in deep respect should hold. Your love of Eastern literature is famed for many a mile. See, from this book, its Western brother greets you with a smile. For there can be no limit or stint to beauty's measure, nor can the lapse of time give noble words bright treasure. Despite their admiration for English literature, Al-Aqad and Shukri were united in their awareness that uncritical adulation and adoption of its poetic and critical ideas posed a threat to Arab poets' cultural identity and stressed the importance for the young poet of a thorough grounding in Arabic literature, which they had been among the last generation to enjoy. A different crisis of identity faced the poets of Al-Mahjar group, who isolated from their linguistic and literary tradition in exile in the United States, experienced an almost schizophrenic division in their poetic mentality. Elia Abu Mahdi and Gibran Khalil Gibran demonstrate two diametrically opposed attitudes to this problem and ways of attempting to solve it. Abu Mahdi, by absorbing and rooting himself in the traditions of Arabic poetry, successfully continued this process as he migrated first to Egypt in 1902, and then to the United States in 1911, where in 1927 he published his third collection of poems, Al-Jadawil, which illustrates how well he had managed to preserve the neoclassical virtues of discipline and purity of diction he developed into a romantic poet with a highly individual voice. From Al-Jadawil. 
كلما هزت يداه وترا هز من كل فؤاد وترا تعس الحظ وهل اتعس من شاعر في امه محتضره يقرا الناظر في مقلته ثوره ظاهره مستتره ما يراه الناس الا واقفا في مغاني قومه المندثره حائرا كالريح في اطلالها باكيا والسحب المنهمره ثم لما عبث الياس به مزق الطبس وشج المحضره Whenever his fingers pluck a chord, it echoes in all hearts that know it. Wretched his fate beyond compare, fate of a dying nation's poet. See, in his eyes there stands revealed rebellion, still or cried aloud. His people see him wandering, tears streaming like a weeping cloud, listless as wind through vanished realms, as dissipated by despair. he drifts through ruins and at last his inkwell smashes parchment tears jibran's experience and his means to healing the cleft in his poetic sensibilities were very different but what's important to remember that as elia abu madi was a master of arabic of the arabic language and of traditional verse of forms jibran's greatest contribution was his inimitable innovative lyrical poetic style unknown in arabic before him he created a new verse form free verse and it derived its rhythm and music from within the the verse itself Gibran was as well the true founder of the school of romantic poetry in Arabic but he had this deep sense of exile this sense of exile forms a strong bond between Gibran and the english romantic poets keats shelley and byron they all lived out their last years on foreign soil exiled from their homeland for a variety of reasons keats because of his failing health which drove him to seek a friendlier climate in italy byron and shelley because of a tangled web of circumstances both personal and political which rendered life in england impossible for either of them plagued by debts and pursued by the scandals surrounding his separation from his wife Annabella Byron was forced to leave England for a wandering life on the continent Shelley fled ab- abroad for good in ni- in 1818 having failed to obtain custody of his two children by his wife Harriet following their separation had death and his estrangement from his father it may be argued that these circumstances in the case of Byron and Shelley were of their own making and did not necessarily compel them to a life of exile however their disillusionment with the political and social conditions 
of contemporary England did in a spiritual sense and finally rendered them stateless in a way to which Gibran and his fellow Mahja poets could respond. The third set of poets, the Apollo group, included <coughs> Salih Jawdat, Ibrahim Naji, Ali Mahmoud Taha, and Hassan Kamil Sayrafi. Coming to maturity in the late 1920s, they were nurtured by two main influences, that of their predecessors, notably Abu Shadi, the close friend of Khalil Mukran, and that of Keats, Shelley, and Byron. Like Abu Shadi, a devoted Anglophile married to an English wife who considered England as his second home, they experienced no clash between these two influences and indeed drew on French poets such as Lamartine, Victor Hugo, Alfred de Musset, either in the original or in Arabic translation as further sources of inspiration. Yet, for the Arab romantics in general, it was Shelley who stood out as the model of the English poet in his own right and as a standard against which to judge his contemporaries Byron and Keats. It was through the critics of the late 19th century that the Arab literary world formed its view of Shelley based on the position adopted by Stopford A. Brooke in his preface to the anthology of Shelley's poetry, which he published in 1880. According to him, Shelley was a man of two worlds. One was the world of mankind and its hopes. The other was the world of his own heart. Shelley was inspired by moral aims and wrote in the hope of a regeneration of the world. While in the second, that of his private verse, he wrote without any ethical end and absolutely apart from humanity. It was this latter Shelley who represented the true poet in the eyes of the late Victorians. Matthew Arnold described him as the ineffectual angel or as a vision of beauty and radiance indeed, but availing nothing, effecting nothing. This image is reflected in Palgrave's selection of Shelley's poems for the Golden Treasury, through which Egyptian students discovered English literature drawn overwhelmingly from his lyric poetry, and it echoed the view of Sainsbury, a critic of highly, regard, highly, highly regarded in the Arab world. As a matter of fact, when I was at the Egyptian University, Sainsbury was a Bible for students of English literature. Byron, in contrast, was seen as a man and poet of coarser fiber than Shelley. While Abu Shadi saw Shelley as a great romantic poet because of his endeavors to break free of the bonds of man's earthly nature, who lived in an ethereal world, difficult for the mob to trace, or to breathe its translucent air. Asibai condemned Byron as more animalistic than Shelley, who was more spiritual. Byron's poetry was sensual, 
even beastly, and sometimes satanic. In contrast to Byron's poetry, sparks struck out of the edges of the sun. Shelley was beams floating out of the moon. This distinction persisted in Abu Shadi, Abu Shadi's second article on Shelley, when 18 years later he described Shelley's verse as created from the substance of a luminous imagination. Byron was not the only poet to be compared unfavorably with Shelley. To Abu Shadi, even Keats was earthly, unlike Shelley, whose ethereal quality caused him to be regarded by Gibran as the most oriental in spirit of the English poets and by the Arab world in general as a kind of Sufi poet, a mystic, striving as in ode to the wind, west wind, away from earthly constraints and upward towards light, beauty, and the eternal. This view of Shelley as a visionary poet of another world accorded well with the idea of poets as seers and prophets, which finds its most coherent expression in Arabic literature in the writings of Gibran, typified in the prophet, where the author portrays an oriental prophet, al-Mustafa, speaking in the language of a western poet, whose disguise he wears, dispensing wisdom and interpreting myth to the Orphalesians. Byron, however, was seen as too closely bound to the grosser side of human nature to fulfill this function adequately. He was a lost soul and a suffering spirit overcome by doubt in all its phases, repeatedly characterized by Arab critics as a world-weary poet of despair, rebellion, and nihilism. His saving grace was that the basis of this attitude was perceived as a thirst for truth similar to that of Keats or for infinity akin to Shelley's relentless quest. We may therefore consider three special areas of contact and attraction between the Arab Romantic poets and Keats, Shelley, and Byron, the subject matter, the language in which they portrayed it, and the nature and personality of the Romantic poets themselves. There was a general view among Arab poets that the sheer strength and intensity of poetic creativity and the emotions which it required did not make for a long life. Al-Hamshari of Egypt, Al-Tijani of Sudan, and Shabi of Tunis were all regarded as examples of the poet who, striving towards the infinite and absolute, led to a brief, brilliant life cut short by an untimely death. This was a pattern to which Keats, Shelley, and Byron were readily assimilated, not only because of the shortness of their lives, but because of the picturesque manner of their deaths. Keats's line in Ode to a Nightingale. Where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies. This line seemed to prefigure his death from 
TB, a wasting disease, which actually refined and heightened the victim's delicacy and beauty into an unearthly fragility, as the body seemed to be literally consumed away by spirit made volatile by the mood swings characteristic of the condition in an advanced stage. He died, too, in exile in the heart of Rome, with all its historical and mythological associations. Shelley met his end battling against the forces of wind and waves in a tempest in the Gulf of Spezia, shouting defiance at the elements from a yacht appropriately named Don Juan. Byron's wanderings culminated at Missolonghi, where the disillusions of his first-hand experience of Greece, the frustration of trying to drill a private army, and the squalor of his death from fever did nothing to detract from the romantic glory of the symbolic sacrifice of his life in the cause of Greek freedom. This was a particular point of attraction for Gibran and other poets of a nation which had suffered directly at the hands of the Ottoman Empire. While for Keats, Greece was a timeless paradise of truth and beauty fixed forever in the vision of a Greek vast paint, painter, vase painter, and for Shelley, Helas epitomized a bright new world surpassing ancient Greece that might come into being after an age of hate and death. Byron saw Greece, the only one of the three to do so with his physical eyes, as a land that might still be free to regain its ancient splendors if, if once its people could be stirred to throw off the Turkish yoke and rediscover the spirit and dignity of their forebears to rid themselves of Turkish force and Latin fraud. In their striving for freedom, both personal and political, and the determination that Greece should be liberated from Ottoman control, these poets inevitably struck a chord in the hearts of Arab poets such as Gibran, whose memories of his country's oppression were bitterly vivid. Gibran wrote Khalil the Heretic, a passage from that famous statement. <laughs>
بعزم سواعدنا قد رفعوا أعمدة الهياكل والمعابد لمجد آلهتهم وعلى ظهورنا قد نقلوا الطين والحجارة لبناء الأسوار والبروج لتعزيز حماهم وبقوى أجسادنا قد أقاموا الأهرام لتخليد أسمائهم فحتى متى نبني القصور والصروح ولا نسكن غير الأكواخ والكهوف ونملأ الأهراء والخزائن ولا نأكل غير الثوم والكراث ونحوك الحرير والصوف ولا نلبس غير المسوح والأقمار بخبثهم واحتيالهم قد فرقوا بين العشيرة والعشيرة وأبعدوا الطائفة عن الطائفة وبغضوا القبيلة بالقبيلة فحتى متى نتبدد كالرماد أمام هذه الزوبعة القاسية ونتصارع كالأشبال الشائعة بقرب هذه الجيفة الممكنة لحفظ عروشهم وطمأنينة قلوبهم قد سلحوا الدرزية لمقاتلة العربي وحمسوا الشيعية لمصارعة السني ونشطوا الكردية لذبح البدوي وشجعوا الأحمدية لمنازعة المسيحي فحتى متى يصرع الأخ أخاه على صدر الأم وإلى متى يتوعد الجار جاره بجانب قبر الحبيبة وإلى ما يتباعد الصليب عن الهلال أمام عين الله أصغي أيتها الحرية واسمعينا التفتي يا أم سكني الأرض وانظرينا فنحن لسنا أبناء ضربتك تكلمي بلسان فرد واحد منا فمن شرارة واحدة يشتعل القش اليابس أيقظي بحفيف أجنحتك روح رجل من رجالنا فمن سحابة واحدة ينبثق البر لينير بلحظة خلايا الأولية وقمم الجبال بددي بعزمك هذه الغيوم السوداء وانزلي كالصاعقة واهدمي كالمنجنيق قوائم العروش المرفوعة على العظام والجماجم المصفحة بذهب الجزية والرشوة المغمورة بالدماء والدموع اسمعينا أيتها الحرية ارحمينا يا ابنة أثينا أنقذينا يا أخت روما خلصينا يا رفيقة موسى أسعفينا يا حبيبة محمد علمينا يا عروسة يسوع قوي قلوبنا لنحيا أو شددي سواعد أعدائنا علينا فنفنا وننقبض ونرتاح From the depths of these depths we call you, O Liberty, hear us. From the corners of this darkness we raise our hands in supplication. Turn your gaze towards us. On the expanse of these snows, we lay ourselves prostrate before you. Have compassion upon us. We stand now before your terrible throne, wearing the blood-smeared garments of our fathers, covering our heads with the dust of the tombs, mingled with their remains. From the grasp of Pharaoh, to the claws of Nebuchadnezzar, to the nails of Alexander, to the swords of Herod, to the claws of Nero, to the fangs of the devil, whose yoke is going to enslave us now. 
And when shall we form within the grasp of death to find comfort away from the silence of non-existence? With the strength of our arms, they erected the pillars of their temples and shrines to glorify their gods. On our backs, they brought clay and stones to build castles to strengthen their strongholds. And with the power of our bodies, they built pyramids to render their names immortal. How long are we to build castles and palaces and live but in huts and caves? How long are we to fill granaries and stores and eat nothing but garlic and clover? How long are we to weave silk and wool and be clad in tattered cloth? Through their cunning and treachery, they have set plan against plan, have separated group from group, have sown the seeds of hate twixt tribe and tribe. How long are we then to wither like ashes before this cruel hurricane and fight like hungry young lions near this stinking carcass? In order to secure their power and to rest at heart's ease, they have armed the Dorzi to fight the Arab, have instigated the Shihi against the Sunni, have incited the Kurd to slaughter the Bedouin, have encouraged the Mohammedan to fight the Christian. How long is a brother to fight his brother on the breast of the mother? How long is a neighbor to threaten his neighbor near the tomb of the beloved? How long are the cross and the crescent to remain apart before the eyes of God? Listen, O liberty, and hearken unto us. Turn your gaze towards us, O mother of the earth's inhabitants, for we are not the offspring of your rival. Speak with the tongue of any one of us, for from one spark the dry straw catches fire. Awaken from the sound of your wings the spirit of one of our men, for from one cloud, one lightning flash illuminates valley lanes and mountain tops. Disperse with your resolve these dark clouds. Descend as a thunderbolt. Destroy like a catapult the props of those thrones erected on bones and skulls, plated with the gold of taxes and bribery and soaked in blood and tears. Listen to us, O liberty. Yeats, in describing a poem he wrote, uh, he said, it gave me a devil of a job. Translating that gave me a devil of a job. However, there's nothing like honesty, so I shall be very honest with you. Normally, I'm very calm giving a lecture. Tonight, I'm a bit nervous. <clears throat> and I think the reason is that the time is uh, somehow limited. I was told that uh, and, and for a good reason, it's my fault, nobody else's, uh, that we should be out from here at about 8 o'clock or something like that. Therefore, what I'm going to do now, say honesty usually saves one's neck, so I'm honest with you. What I'm going to do now is to dispense with my text and really deal with the poetry. Because what it, 
Shakespeare said, the play is the thing. And sometimes in universities we forget that it is the poet that is important and not what we say about his work. And therefore I'm going to deal with a number of poets here that have been translated into English and just introduce the subjects one and one. And I think in doing this uh, and leaving you in the hands of uh, my very dear brother Tom and Antoine, they will redeem me if I were beyond redemption. Anyhow, the mythology of Greece was not so important uh, because Arab really mythology did not exist in the same sense as Greek mythology existed for Keats, Shelley, and Byron. However, Abdurrahman Shukri, who has been exposed to, uh, was a Sheffield, read Greek literature in translation during his studies at Sheffield seized upon the myths as a fount of inspiration. And this is one way in which the English Romantic poets were perhaps very influential as far as he's concerned. He wrote uh, a number of poems under the title Al-Jamal wal-Ibadah inda Qudama' al-Igriq, inda Qudama' al-Yunan, Beauty and Worship Among the Ancient Greeks, in which the influence of Keats, known to Arab poets as Sha'ar al-Haqqi wal-Jamal, the poet of truth and beauty, is immediately apparent. From a poem of this collection by Abdurrahman Shukri, Kam ummatin ahkamat bilhusni dawlataha Fakhallafathu wa awda majduha al-thani حب الجمال حياة لا نفاد لها لا نهب دهر ولا أسلاب حثاني يا رب مرأ لنا منها ورب منا فيها وحسن قديم الدهر يناني لف على زمن كان الجمال به ما يعبد الناس في دين وإيماني لم يحبس المرأة عن آماله فرق منها ولم يثنه عن عزمه ثاني الحب والحسن والأشعار دينهم أنعم بذلك دينا بين أدياني لم يزر بالحق حب الحسن بينهم فالحق والحسن إن فكرت سياني يرون في كل شيء through beauty, many a nation over others has held sway. Beauty that lasts when transient glory vanishes away. For this is life eternal, abiding love of beauty, which never wages war for gain, nor battles for the booty. That self-same beauty we may see and strive to make our own, a beauty that in ancient times among the Greeks was known. Oh, for the days when beauty alone did men revere, to make it their religion, their faith, their creed most dear. Their aspirations narrowed by the tenets of no sect, no trammels that the will of its sure purpose might deflect. Love poetry and beauty, on these their faith did rest, 
Among the world's religions, this indeed we may call blessed. Their love of beauty never betrayed the truth with treacherous shame. Look closely. Truth and beauty, we find, are one and the same. For the breath of life in all things in creation they proceed, and a soul in beauty's form and likeness fashioned wondrously. These lines recall not only the famous lines from Endymion, a thing of beauty is joy forever, and ode on a Grecian urn, beauty is truth, truth beauty, that is all ye know on earth and all you need to know. But Keats's delight in the Greek spirit, the religion of the beautiful, the religion of joy, as recorded by Joseph Severn. Paradoxically, the experience of exile from his native land drove Gibran away from Greek mythology towards that of his own culture. Despite an early interest in Greek myth, he consciously rejected the possibility of writing poetry based on it for reasons which he stated in a letter to Mary Haskell of 1913, in which he described Greek art as visual and that of the ancient Middle Eastern peoples as visionary by reason of a third eye common to Chaldean, Phoenician, and Egyptian artists, but lacking in the Greeks. These ideas find their culmination in his book, The Earth Gods, passages from The Earth Gods. Aware of the decline and inadequacy of power, the first god laments. Could I but lose the primal aim and vanish like a wasted sun? Could I but strip my divinity of purpose and breathe my immortality into space and be no more? Could I but be consumed and pass from time's memory into the emptiness of nowhere? The second god representing absolute knowledge, declares. The tent maker sits darkly at his loom, and the potter turns his wheel unaware. But we, the sleepless and the knowing, we are released from guessing and from chance. We pause not, nor do we wait for thought. We are beyond all restless questioning. The third god prophesies, but love shall stay and his finger mark shall not be erased. Although he finally converts the second god to the religion of love, he perceives that all three will eventually pass away, leaving only the principle of purely human love behind. Better it is for us, and wiser, to seek a shadowed nook and sleep in our earth divinity. One of the fruitful areas of symbolism common to both English and Arab Romantic poets, was the realm of birds. Shelley's To a Skylark was translated no fewer than 11 times between 1913 and 1950, and was perhaps the most influential English poem for Arab writers of that period. Apart from the <clears throat> attempts of Zakaria Ibrahim, writing a poem which I don't think was very, really great, but the idea of the radiant spontaneity, which is in Shukri's Asfur al-Jannah, the bird of paradise, uh, echoes some of those lines in, Keith, in, in, in Shelley. 
الاقلام يا طائر الفردوس ان الشعر وجدان وفي شدوك شعر النفس لازم وبهتان فلا تعتد بالناس فما في الخلق انسان وجد لي منك بالشعر فان فيه اخوان او bird paradise man's conscience and his soul are wrapped in poetry your voice whose truth is whole put trust in no one else for in all the world no other can be to me what you are in poetry my brother the spirit of shelley is even more apparent in gibran's ashhrur both in sentiment and language which has gained a new transparent lyricism ashhrur ايها الشحرور هرب فالغنى سر الوجود ليتني مثلك حر من سجون وقيود ليتني مثلك روح في فضا الوادي اطير اشرب النور مداما في كؤوس من اثير ليتني مثلك طهرا واقتناعا ورضا معرض عما سياتي غافل عما مضى ليتني مثلك فكرا سابحا فوق الهضاب اسكب الانغام عفوا بين غاب وسحاب ايها الشحرور غني واصرف الاشجان عني ان في صوتك صوتا نافخا في اذن اذني sing o thrush song is the mystery of being would i were like you free from cages and chains would i were like you a spirit flying through the open spaces of the valley drinking light as wine in cups of ether would i were as pure as you satisfied and contented heedless of what is to come and unaware of what is past would i were like you gentle beautiful and glorious my wings spread wide by the wind to be embroidered with the dew would i were like you a thought floating over the hills pouring forth my songs abroad between forest and cloud sing o thrush and dispel my sorrows in your voice In discussing this relationship between the romantic English poets and the Arab po- poets of the 20th century, it may be interesting to refer to a poem written by Shelley entitled From the Arabic, an imitation, published in 1821. My faint spirit was sitting in the light of thy looks, my love. It panted for thee like the hind at noon for the brook. I bow whose cruise outspeed the tempest's flight for thee far from me. My heart, my weak feet were weary soon, did companion thee. Ah, fleeter far than fleetest storm or steed or the death they bear. The heart which tender thought clothes like a dove with the wings of care. In the battle, in the darkness, in the need, shall mine cling to thee. nor claim one thought for all the comfort love it may bring to me. 
The similarity between Shar al-Udri, which is platonic love, and this poem by Abdurrahman Shukri is quite interesting. It's entitled, The Poet and the Image of Perfection, Al-Sha'ir wa Surat Al-Kamal. Qad haddathu. Qad haddathu. Eh, ana... Eh, safha 25. تحدثوا عن شاعر نابغ مجود الشعر شريف المقام لم يعشق الغيد ولكنه هام بذيك من بنات الخيال صورة حسن صارها لبه وحدها في الحسن حد الكمال فصارت الطفل رأى بارقا هاج له أطماعه في المحال يمد نحو النجم كفا له ويحسب النجم قريب المنال فأينما سار تراءت له كما تراءى خادعا لمع آل خيالها دان به حائم كأنه غير عزيز المنال وربما أكسبها وهمه جسما وكم وهم غريب الصيام قد هجر الأتراب من وحشة وصار يمشي فوقها من جبال يحدث النفس بأمر الهوى ويسأل الأرواح رجع السؤال فبينما يسعى على قمة تروع النفس بمرأى الجلال رأى التي صورها لبه تصوير صب عابد للجمال قالت له إن كنت لعاشقا فاتبع خطايا واصطبط بالخيال فراح يقفو إثرها هائما والمهتدي بالوهم جم الضلال وهم أن يمسكها جاهدا بين ذراعيه بأيد عجال ما زال يعدو جهده نحوها حتى هوى من فوق تلك القلال فرحمة الله على شاعر مات قتيلا للأمان قوار Once, so they say, on this earth lived a poet, a genius, noble of words, who excelled in the writing of verses. None of his age's own beauties, though, could he adore. So in their stead, a girl whom his inner mind conjured held him in rapture, unparalleled beauty incarnate. Spellbound by what he'd created, he gazed like a child watching a glittering star, drawn by desire past fulfilling. He stretched out a hand to capture that radiant star, thinking it close to his fingers and easy to catch. Wherever he went, she was floating in front of his eyes, keeping him caught in delusion so glistening bright. So close was her image, it summoned him everywhere, seeming perhaps well within his power to attain. His fancy endowed her with shape and a physical form, so many and strange the caprices that fantasy spins. Friends he forsook, and for colleagues but little he cared. Over the mountains from peak to peak, aimlessly roaming, 
there with himself the affairs of the heart he debated, seeking replies to things questioned by many a soul. But as he stood on the tip of a mountain's high summit, gazing inspired by the majesty spreading around, there he caught sight of her, formed by his mind's inner fancy, seen through the eyes of a worshipper deeply in love. These were her words. If you love me with genuine love, follow me. Imagination will act as your guide. Closely he followed, but knowing not which way to go, for fancy's a guide that is apt to lead mortals astray. Desperate, he strove to embrace her, clasp her tight in his arms, rushing towards her, no effort he spared, but alas, his arms closed on nothing. To death from the mountain he plunged. God grant repose to the soul of that poet, whose downfall came through desires and through hopes that imagining caused to grow great. I'll end uh, tonight's uh, lecture with two examples, one of Byron's influence on some of the poets, and finally, Gibran's uh, response to Keats's epitaph, Here Lies One Whose Name is Writ in Water. Naqim. Naqim ala sama, haqidun ala al-bashar, saakhitun ala al-qaba, ta'irun ala al-qadar, غير قطرة المساء لا أحب في السحر صرت أمقت الصفاء صرت أعشق الكدر ناقم على السماء والبشر جملي لي الجسد واسكبي لي الرحيل لا تفكري بغد قد يجي ولا نفيد ما لنا وللأبد إن سره عميق الهوى إذا اتقد كان للبلا طريق فلنمت يدا بيد ولنغيب البريق بين شهوة الجسد والرحيم. Angry with the heavens above, filled with hatred for mankind, with my faith dissatisfied. Fighting with my destiny, nothing as dawn breaks I love, save one single drop of night. Friendship I have grown to hate, grievance I have grown to love. Both the heavens and the world of humankind arouse my rage. Make the body beautiful, let the wine flow freely pour. Think not of tomorrow's day, that may come when we are dead. What's eternity to us? So deep is mystery. For when passion is a fire, desire extinguished is its end. Clasped together, let us die, burying the flaring light in desire's hot blazing glow, drowning it in draughts of wine. Uh, a critic described this as satanic poetry. This uh, kind of satanic poetry was really a very small amount in a culture which lacked a genre of tragedy because of the vision of mankind as poised between fall and redemption. Metaphysical rebellion were described 
tended to be mitigated by the promise of paradise regained. However, I tried to survey some aspects of the attraction between English and Arab Romantic poets. Some I have left out owing to the constraints of time. But the common themes, the images which they had of each other's cultures, and the patterns of perception and diction which they shared are quite evident to anyone listening through the translation of these poems. How better then to end with the words in which, like Shelley, Gibran denied Keats's pessimistic vision of oblivion and affirmed his lasting fame and his place in the hearts of poets and of humanity, and emphasizing the endurance of the romantic vision. أهكذا تمر بنا الليالي أهكذا تندثر تحت أقدام الدهر أهكذا تطوين الأجيال ولا تحفظ لنا سوى اسم تخط على صحفها بماء بدلا من المداد أينطفئ هذا النور وتزول هذه المحبة وتضمحل هذه الأماني أيهدم الموت كل ما نبنيه ويذر الهواء كل ما نقوله ويخفي الظل كل ما نفعله أهذه هي الحياة هل هي ماض قد زال واختفت آثاره وحاضر يركض لاحقا بالماضي ومستقبل لا معنى له إلا إذا ما مر وصار حاضرا أو ماضيا أتزول جميع مسرات قلوبنا وأحزان أنفسنا دون أن نعلم نتائجها أهكذا يكون الإنسان مثل زبد البحر يطفو دقيقة على وجه الماء ثم تمر نسيمات الهواء فتطفئه ويصبح كأنه لم يكن لا لعمل فحقيقة الحياة حياة حياة لم يكن ابتداؤها في الرحم ولن يكون منتهاها في اللحم وما هذه السنوات إلا لحظة من حياة أزلية أبدية هذا العمر الدنيوي مع كل ما فيه هو حلم بجانب اليقظة التي ندعوها الموت المخيف حلم ولكن كل ما رأيناه وفعلناه فيه يبقى ببقاء الله فالأثير يحمل كل ابتسامة وكل تنهدة تصعد من قلوبنا ويحفظ صدى كل قبلة مصدرها المحبة والملائكة تحصي كل دمعة يقطرها الحزن من أخينا وتعيد على مسمع الأرواح السابحة في فضاء اللانهاية كل أنشودة اتبعها الفرح من مشاعرنا هناك في العالم الآتي سنرى جميع تموجات مشاعرنا واهتزازات قلوبنا 
وهناك يدرك كنها ألوهيتنا التي نحتفرها الآن مدفوعين بعوامل الأمور الضرار الذي ندعوه اليوم ضعفا سيظهر في الغد كحلقة كيانها واجب لتكملة سلسلة حياة ابن آدم الأتعاب التي لا نكافأ عليها الآن ستحيا معنا وتذيع مجدنا الأرزاق التي نحتملها ستكون إكليلا لفخرنا هذا ولو علم فيتس ذلك البلبل الصباح أن أناشيده لم تزل تبث روح محبة الجمال في قلوب البشر لقال احفر على لوح قبري هنا بقايا من كتب اسمه على أديم السماء بأحرف من نار Letters of Fire Here lies one whose name was writ in water John Keats Is it that the nights pass by us and destiny treads us underfoot Is it thus the ages engulf us and remember us not, save as a name upon a page writ in water in place of ink? Is this life to be extinguished, and this love to vanish, and these hopes to fade? Shall death destroy that which we build, and the winds scatter our words, and darkness hide our deeds? Is this then life, a past that has gone and left no trace, a present pursuing the past, or a future without meaning, save when it is present and past? Shall all that is joy in our hearts, and all that saddens our spirit, vanish ere we know their fruits? Shall man be even as the foam that sits an instant on the ocean's face, and is taken by the passing breeze, and is no more? No, in truth, for the verity of life is life, life whose birth is not in the womb, nor its end in death. What are these years, if not an instant in eternity? This earthly life and all therein is but a dream beside the awakening we call death and terror. A dream, yet all we see and do therein endures with God's enduring. The air bears every smile and every sigh arising from our hearts and stores away the voice of every kiss whose source and spring is love. And angels make account of every tear dropped by sadness from our eyes and fill the ears of wandering spirits with song created by our hidden joys. Yonder, in the hereafter, we shall see the beating of our hearts and comprehend the meaning of our godlike state that in this day we hold as naught because despair is ever at our heels. The despair that today we call a weakness shall appear on the morrow a link in man's existence. The fret and toil that requite us not shall abide with us to tell our glory. The afflictions that we bear shall be to us a crown of If that sweet singer Keats had known that his songs would never cease to plant love of beauty in men's hearts, surely he had said, 
right upon my gravestone, here lie the remains of him who wrote his name on heaven's face in letters of fire. And let Goethe have the final words. Every moment in this life is an, of infinite value, for it represents a whole eternity. Hold fast unto it. Suhail, thank you so much. Uh, we may have been defeated by time in this brief moment, but we don't leave this evening feel, feeling defeated at all because you and Antoine and Tom have entertained us hugely and informed us marvellously. And perhaps the greatest accolade of all, I think I can say with confidence, the Kathleen will have been pleased. And pleased, not least, that, like the young woman in the poem, we have let imagine, imagination act as our guide. Thank you so much. It is our normal practice to end our evenings with a short period of silence, and I hope you will join us in this. Thank you and good night.